0: Welcome to the Number 1 Cookbook Podcast, Cookery by the Book with Susie Chase. She's just a home cook in New York City, sitting at her dining room table, talking to cookbook authors.
1: Hi, my name is Danny Singer and I am the author of
0: Always Home: A Daughter's Recipes and Stories. So this book was called Home as the working title, and a dear family friend coined the title Always Home. I would love to hear the story because that dear family friend is a Kansas Cityan like me and also lives around the corner from me here in the West Village. Yes. So I really
1: owe uh, Calvin Trillin, or as he's known to his his familiars as Bud. And he's kind of like a, a sort of godfather of mine. I mean, to the extent that we have such things in Jewish culture, which we don't really, but he, I grew up knowing him and his wonderful wife, Alice. Um, and Bud is also a wonderful writer and longtime staff writer at the New Yorker and humorist. And I was calling the book home and my editor was really prodding me to come up with something just a little bit more or distinguished or with a little more flair. And and I, and yet I really wanted to communicate the same sentiment, which is like this sort of universality of this idea of home or that you can kind of conjure home wherever you are. And I was like really stumped, but I was staying with Bud at the time and he said, what about always home? And of course this is well before like we even have any inkling of the oncoming you know pandemic and quarantine and everything. And I ended up releasing the heart back. End of March 2020 at a moment when everyone was always home. So I, it was, it became this sort of hilariously prophetic title. And I'm certain a lot of people picked it up probably for that alone, because it just like was, it seemed like it was too on the nose after the pandemic kicked off. And I realized just how sort of ridiculously resonant the title was. I called Bud and I was like, I owe you one for this. Thank you.
0: A little bit memoir, a little bit travelogue, and a little bit cookbook. Tell me about the chapter names. Basically, the way I structured the book or the writing of the book was um, sort of
1: half recipes I knew needed to be in there. And then like the stories kind of embroidered in a way off the recipe and then half like stories I knew needed to be in there. And then the recipes that I could imagine kind of Coming out of those stories. The stories and the recipes are very sort of integrated in terms of narrative voice. And I didn't want, you know, as you're going from a story into a recipe, I didn't want it to feel jarring or like you're jumping into some kind of method. Um, So I feel like some of the titles of the stories are
0: really descriptive and some are perhaps like a little bit more atmospheric. For example, the chicken stock chapter, where we get a story about how your mom used to arrive at your apartment with the chicken in her purse. And so then you also write about how to make garlicky noodle soup but it's not in a typical recipe format. I'm curious about that.
1: I mean, I don't cook from recipes, actually. I'm probably overly freewheeling and intuitive as a cook. And so I don't really like to read recipes for method so much as for inspiration. And I find I get a lot out of reading recipes, even ones that are much more, you know, method intensive, because I still find that they become a kind of poetry and very evocative poetry for me. And I can immediately start to sort of imagine how flavors and senses can bind but it's not how I reflexively cook. So I wanted to write um, the recipes in a way that felt both like There was a continuity from the narrative story that precedes the recipes that you, like I mentioned, that you don't have this kind of rift. But I also wanted them to be kind of intuitive and very focused on tasting and smelling and actually really relying on your senses to guide you in how you cook. And I'm hoping, you know, that because the recipes are for the most part, not particularly complex, that people will not feel intimidated by the absence of exact measurements and like, you know, step-by-step method and actually feel like, you know, this is approachable. I can taste it and decide if I want more parsley or not, or, you know, I have a really big lemon, so maybe I'm leaning half, you know, which I, I find recipes are often calling for things that aren't necessarily sort of realistic or that don't chime with the way produce, especially organic and farmer's market produce exists in the real world, which is like a lemon is not a lemon is not a lemon. My godmother's tree grows lemons that are like, the size of footballs, you know, which like be way too much lemon juice for a standard recipe that's calling for, you know, half a lemon or whatever. So I I kind of wanted to write in that way that felt more fluid and more open to interpretation. And weirdly, and I said this to my to my editor early on, I was like, I don't really feel like people are going to use this as a cookbook. Like, it's just going to be more of a kind of like atmospherics of food and they'll read it for the narrative. And he's like, I think you're wrong. Like these recipes are enticing. So I think wrong. a cook <laughs> them. And I, I was completely wrong. I mean, I think every, I've seen someone post like photos or write to me or republish versions of like every single recipe in the book. So I get a lot of messages about basically everything. I had completely sort of misconstrued, you know, the extent of its utility as an actual like cookbook, which just goes to show how out of touch I am with that world of recipe writing. What was your
0: favorite breakfast growing up?
1: You know, my mom made this famous, you know, egg in the spoon, um, which was cooked in the fireplace. This just perfect fried egg. And you know, my company permanent collection made this spoon because it was it, this was something that I loved so much when I was a kid. We were like, we should make it available to other people. However, I think really like my favorite thing was cream of wheat like that my dad would make. It was just like the simplest little porridge. And actually it was legitimately just cream of wheat. It was not. So I'm like, I, I say this in the book, I'm like, I have no idea how my mom let this stuff have a pass. Cause it was like the real standard stuff, not like organic, you know, like wheat berries <laughs> from some artisanal farm. But I, there was something about that flavor that even as a kid, like just seemed maybe because it was so kind of anathema. It was like, so sort of mild and, um, and sweet, you know, just with this, with this little rim of milk and butter that it was. And so unlike like, most of what my mom was cooking that I really,
0: I really savored it. You wrote this on Instagram a few weeks ago. On cold mornings or melancholy mornings or lonely mornings, I make myself a bowl of porridge, stir in some butter and get back in bed.
1: (laughs) Yes, exactly. It's still my sort of like panacea for whenever I'm feeling, you know, a little like glum or just in need of something kind of nostalgic. Although I will say I do now make like a version that's organic and with like generally a bunch of different interesting grains in it that make it like a little more nutritionally interesting. Interesting. You had to, <laughs> you know, like I've grown up a little, what can I say?
0: One of the most distinctive things about your mother is her hands. You say her hands are a mirror of her determination. I'd love to hear about chapter four, peeling fruit.
1: My mother's hands really are remarkable. They're very small. She keeps her nails very, very shorn. Like she's never had nails, which meant she was always like terrible at giving back scratches, which I always greedily wanted. And she wears all these um, Victorian an Edwardian era rings on her fingers that are always missing like a little stone here or there kind of dinged up because she uses her hands all the time I mean like she just plunges them into like hot stock and you know to do whatever she needs to do I mean she doesn't hesitate like when I was a kid I was like you have asbestos hands and of course now I'm exactly the same like I'll just reach into like a boiling thing if I need to fish something out but they're also incredibly for bean hands that she uses all the time they're very soft and smooth and so I would like really focus in on them when she was doing tasks like like the peeling of the fruit which was this kind of ritual at the end of every meal we never had anything like really sweet for dessert you know we didn't have cakes or cookies and she didn't bake and so actually there was never really a culture of like having a sort of sweet thing at the end like occasionally when i was older we'd go to shape and and order dessert but it wasn't really a fixture at home and so there was always this like beautiful bowl of whatever seasonal fruit was available in the middle of the dining table and she would sort of feel around for the most perfectly ripe fruit. And then um, it would become this kind of like almost meditative practice of peeling this fruit, whether it was a tangerine. And she would always do this with a knife, you know, like even citrus, you know, she would peel with a knife and section or a perfect pear or a plum or nectarine or peach, you know, slipping the skin off a peach. And I just have such vivid memories of that because she would also ask me to go get her the little knife. And even when when I was little, I was sort of trusted to go get this somewhat hazardous implement and bring it to her with a little plate. And so I was sort of implicated in this ritual. And I was also usually the recipient of like the choicest little morsel. So it was one of my favorite moments of any um, meal together.
0: I frankly was shocked to hear that you and your mom don't bake, but I was also happy because I don't love baking. <laughs> <laughs> so it's definitely just not
1: for everyone. To be honest, I think we like lack the rigor and focus. It's just... It takes paying attention. I wrote this in a, an Instagram post recently because I was I felt like I needed to let people know that just because I was attempting or I had made scones did not mean that I'd had like st- what you could strictly describe as baking success. Like I had had to make scones because while I was trying to make muffins, I thought I was following a recipe and I was just mindlessly cutting butter into the flour, which is not what you do for muffins. <laughs> like it, you're just supposed to melt the oil and like add it into like the dry dry ingredients with the wet. And I was like, what am I doing? So I had to put that flour that now had like pea-sized butter in it into the fridge. And just, I was like, I guess I could make like cream scones with that. Like that's how bad I am at following a baking recipe. Like it just, it's, I'm abysmal. Not my forte. It's so messy too. I think if you're someone who's really good at following a recipe, you're also someone who knows how to like keep some kind of order when you are baking. But me, both bad at following recipes and just sort of generally Distracted with baking, it's like I look like I've set off a bomb in the kitchen when I bake. Yes. Like there's flour everywhere. I've used like twice or three times as many bowls as should have been used for the recipe. Like it's just like my boyfriend will come in and just be
0: like, "What happened?" And I was like, "I tried to make a tart. <laughs> like it's just I don't know what happened." So I found the smell chapter so very interesting. You would inspect your mother's scent when she came through the door every day. try to guess the food scent on her you called it sniffing and guessing
1: ah yes i uh my sense of smell remains my most acute sense and it has always been I mean I think actually there must have been sort of some kind of like compensation for how bad my eyesight is I've been wearing glasses since I was little there's some genetic element to it because obviously my mom has a really wonderful palate and a wonderful sense of smell and um and is very discerning in that regard but my dad too has been involved in the wine business for his entire career and became obsessed with wine even when he was like a teenager a Jewish teenager in Tulsa Oklahoma like I I think he, got, he tasted like one good bottle of wine, uh, you know, in his like dad's business partner's house and became really interested in wine and, and, you know, it's provenance and different varietals and started to keep like a diary, even when he was a teenager in Oklahoma who had effectively no access to good wine up until he started prodding his dad to like buy some decent bottles from Europe. So my father too has this really amazing palate. My mom used to love playing this game with him where she would, you know, sort of blind pour him a glass of wine and like making guests you know, where it was from, maybe the chateau, what vintage. And he was uncannily correct most of the time. So I think I come by the sense of smell kind of honestly, but it has been, you know, a sort of mixture of blessing and tyranny because I mean, I'm so harassed by bad smells as much as I feel like I can be kind of discerning and enjoy really good smells. But I wanted to find a way to write about food that felt very olfactorily specific. I don't feel like that exists in a lot of writing, like, you know, culinary writing, specifically i think we get a lot of good visual imagery we get a lot of good visual description on some good like palette notes and stuff but less in terms of like the specificity of, of a scent and a fragrance to things and how much that can be a kind of bellwether for how you cook and i i love that ruth Rachel and i was talking to her this is like a couple years ago and we were supposed to be doing this um 92nd street y event and we ended up doing it virtually and she she was just chatting with me and my mom beforehand and she mentioned that her mother cooked by Smell and didn't really taste as she was going along. And I never heard that before, but that's kind of how I cook. Like, I will taste before I plate something, but I don't really taste that much as I'm cooking. Like, I really rely on my sense of smell to guide me. Like, does that have enough fat in it? Can I smell the fat? You know, can I smell the aromatics? Does it have enough basil in it? Did I like add enough herbs or enough chili? And those things come to me entirely through my sense of smell. Um, So I rely on it for all kinds of
0: information. What's your first memory of Shea Panisse? It's really a tapestry in a way,
1: a kind of melded sense memory tapestry. I mean, I always, you know, writing a memoir, I was like, I kind of feel like I have a bad memory for someone who's about to write a memoir because I had a lot of my memories really are impressionistic, especially from early days. But I do completely remember, for instance, being a little girl playing, you know, under the um, tables downstairs in the restaurant with my mom's business partner at the time, um, whose name was Tom, who I just adored. And he would play. Okay like little tea parties with me and we'd have little cups we'd use the espresso cups and we would you know he would make some tea and we'd have little like tiny tea parties under the table and he was like probably six foot three or something I don't know how he managed to like crane himself underneath these tables but I do have the memory of that and just so many people really actually at the restaurant the pastry chef still today Mary Jo who at one point left for you know a period of time and opened a wonderful restaurant and she's back in the fold at Panisse, but she was there when I was little and she was also my babysitter outside of the restaurant. So she was someone that I loved and I would sit on the counter with her in the pastry department and she would put little frozen raspberries on my fingertips and draw little faces on them. And I just loved spending time with her in that part of the kitchen because there was always something like beautifully aromatic, like caramel being made or fruit cooking down.
0: There are so many beautifully written vignettes about a loving and unconventional upbringing focused on cooking and eating delicious food. So did you ever feel rebellious? Like, I'm going to go through McDonald's drive through today? Huh. Um, you know,
1: listen, I'm not like completely pure. I definitely ate some chicken nuggets at some point when I was in high school but um you know my mom's kind of it, the intensity of her you know rigor when it comes to food it didn't actually feel ungenerous when i was a kid you know or when i was a teenager it felt in fact on the contrary it felt like the most loving most invested most secure expression of love and even when i was a teenager and we were going through my parents were going through a divorce and you know, it wasn't like all smooth sailing. I really understood that she loved me and she was constant and she was there for me because of the way that she communicated through food. And it never was something I wanted to repudiate. It was something that felt like a total loving embrace. And it's and it's what I really keep trying to say is maybe like the one takeaway from the book, which is like, I hope people understand that food is not just about nourishment. It's also about communication. I mean, it's about communicating a kind of quality of care, not just for the person that you are feeding, but also for the planet and for the people who are growing the food. It's really a conversation that begins in the ground and ends in the mouth, you know, in the belly. And as a teenager, I didn't have this kind of language for it, but I did sort of implicitly understand what it was all about. And I didn't have, you know, the impulse to shove it away. And it's not to say I didn't like love those disgusting sour candy straws and I would get them in the gas station (laughs) from time to time. And there were a few little things that were like minor minor rebellions but not on the order of wanting to refuse everything and you know do this just sort of 180 and mostly because every all those other options were so much less delicious you know I think when you're presented with the most delicious thing it, you know it's like everything
0: in your body is thrilling towards it you know rather than the opposite. Chapter eight is entitled salad and I'm curious to know uh, why you were trying to get away from talking about salad you sort of mention it here. Here and there. And it's your mother's favorite food. And I think your favorite food too, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, nothing, nothing top salad for me. Obviously, like I eat other
1: things, but I just love to have salad with every meal pretty much. I like breakfast, lunch, and dinner if I have my way. I mean, you need good salad, obviously, not just any old salad, but I just have always loved roughage. And my mom too. I like it's almost something that I feel is like encoded in her genes. But I think I felt like, is there enough so here to write a chapter you know yes we love salad but does anyone really care and then I was like, "All right, it's got to have a little chapter, like even if it's a short one, because you know it is something that we always yearn for when we don't have access to it, and it's something that always features on our table, and it's something that is its own kind of ritual, you know, of cleaning it and rolling it in these long linen torchon towels and putting it in the refrigerator, and then taking it back out like a salad baby, and and just the care that it, <laughs> you invest in in making a really." perfect salad. It's not, you know, an afterthought. It's actually is a kind of main event.
0: So I think I've heard you talk about, and I might be, um, butchering the story about when you were young traveling with your mother. I don't know if it was your mother and your father to Italy and you'd be at some random Italian restaurant and your mom would ask them if they could make a green salad and they'd look at her crazy.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, you'd think actually like in Italy, that you would be able to get such a thing. But it's just not, it's not customary on menus to have like just leaves, you know, like a very simple green salad. You might find a sort of tricolore, you know, like um, salad has some radicchio and, and rucola in it. But even like a chicory salad, even when the chicories are in season, even when the lettuce, you can sort of see the farmer's market, like right adjacent to the restaurant, selling beautiful lettuce. It's still seen as a kind of like, you have that at home, you know, you don't eat that at a restaurant. Because a simple like, you know, rucola salad with like shaved Parmesan is a, such a standard Italian salad, but it just, it features on menus in American restaurants that are Italian, but not in in Italy proper. And I just remember we were in like Palermo, and we were at a wonderful restaurant and it was this kind of local joint and we had like beautiful, like, you know breaded tripe and all kinds of like standard things and then we were just we were like we just need need a salad like desperately need a salad (laughs) and we ordered that we ordered a salad we're like do you have any like verdure and it was like verdure is vegetables or like you know leaves and and we get this like iceberg (laughs) lettuce with just and it was a fantastic restaurant it was like the salad was like they're like what you know they found it's like they found an iceberg lettuce somewhere in the refrigerator and they had like these parched grated carrots on it and we were like what is this (laughs) like how could this be possible but you know it's why now we're sort of like obsessively cooking at home even when we travel to countries you know we're always like making sure to go to the farmers markets and get these beautiful products and then feasting on salad whenever we're, we're cooking at home so that we can then have just, you know, pasta, whatever,
0: out. Well, speaking of traveling, the last recipe in the book is coming home pasta, a recipe you ate all the time when you were a kid. And it's one of those indelible memories of your childhood. Could you please describe coming home pasta and when you'd make it?
1: Yes, Coming Home Pasta, which I think did turn out to be the most, quote unquote, viral recipe of the book, probably because um, its ingredients are very, really quite spare. And the book came out, you know, at a time when there were just desolate supermarket shelves everywhere. And I think people were sort of actually looking for recipes that that sort of lacked any like serious adornment in the in the flavor department and so it was like anything you could put together from pantry staples and this pasta was really something that we made when we came back from a long trip and there wasn't much in the you know in the refrigerator and the pantry sort of spare and but you could reliably like source a little bit of garlic that hadn't gone totally to sprout and there were always some capers and you could Definitely find some good chili in your condiment cabinet. And there's always like enough. Harm, even it was sort of like blooming with age spots and at least like a couple kinds of pasta that you could cobble something together and it was something that we would make to kind of create a sense of, of coming home like an atmosphere of being back together and back in this place that had like a little bit of a flavor of being disused you know I always um, talked about the smell of turning the heaters back on and like smelling the particles of dust you know sort of roasting in the heaters because the heaters had been off and um, they were these old like Victorian Victorian heater, floor heaters in, the, in our house, and. You're trying to kind of get back in the rhythm of being home and everyone's a little bit tired and jet-lagged and out of it from travel. And one of my parents would go grab a bottle of wine from the cellar and I'd get sent out to the garden to get some parsley, during which time my mom would usually put, at the time, reviled anchovies into this kind of like white puttanesca sauce that we are making. And it's that, it's kind of, you know, it's, it's anchovies, it's garlic, it's chili and capers and, you know, everything's minced to kind of a uniform, size and the herbs are added at the end and a little bit of parm and really good olive oil and it's just the most delicious pasta and it's also this feeling of return you know this feeling of really being back back home
0: now to my segment called dream dinner party where i ask you who you most want to invite to your dream dinner party and why and for this segment it can only be one person and i cannot wait to hear what you have to say I
1: mean, I think it would have to be MFK Fisher, Um, but her writing has been so influential to me and I think it would just be interesting. I don't know if I would cook anything that she would like to eat, but I just feel like there's something to reach across the ages and to identify with someone so keenly on how they write about food with the experience of conviviality and bringing people together. Um, It would be intimidating, but it would also be an honor, of course, of my life to cook for her. But moreover, I'd want her to just regale me with stories about food.
0: Where can we find you on the web and social media? I am um, on Instagram
1: as at Fanny Singer, and I run a design brand that focuses a lot on actually cooking stuff, which is at Permanent Collections. You can find me in both of those places. I also have a a PhD in art history. So I do quite a bit of writing on art and contemporary art and review things for magazines like Freeze and Art Agenda. So you can find um, pieces I've written about art, very different topics Um, and yeah.
0: To purchase Always Home out in paperback and support the podcast, head over to cookerybythebook.com. And thank you so much, Fanny, for coming on Cookery by the Book podcast.
1: Thank you so much, Susie, for having me. This has been such a pleasure. Subscribe over on cookerybythebook.com. And thanks for listening to the number one cookbook podcast, Cookery by the Book.